Today, I collaborate with Cecilia Cicel Lucas, a multifaceted social justice community member. Along with teaching at UC Berkeley and involvement with Poor Magazine, Cecilia is co founder of Creating Freedom Movements, which is a year long support program nurturing folks as grassroots movement leaders who cultivate more justice and more joy in the world. This conversation is a beautiful guide for how to find equanimity in our lives and extend that as a guiding force for creating intentional communities of care. Cecilia pulls from her experience growing up between two countries, as well as her queer identity, as a lens for understanding the complex both and of human experience. Her Buddhist practice helps further inform this alongside her work across so many different communities and relating to her own shifting identities and experiences of both privilege and marginalization. So first of all, thank you, Cecilia, for making time to collaborate on an episode of Everything is Workable. Thank you for having me here. Excited to talk with you. And I always start off by asking people to talk about their background and what brought them to the work that they're doing. I've been playing with this, uh, but I like to say what your experience was from moving from I am suffering to there is suffering. But really, it's about getting at what was it that put you on a path of being of service? Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that distinction between the I am suffering and there is suffering because I've listened to some of the episodes. So I know that's a, an opening question. And I was realizing that I've actually been tuned into the there is suffering from a really early age and have also had very, very young teachers around that for me. Like I was remembering actually being about 10 years old or something and babysitting this two-year-old girl and there was this big storm and she started crying and being incredibly upset and I was comforting her and trying to explain that, you know, she's safe and she pauses and looks at me, you know, as though she were just completely surprised by my level of ignorance and (laughs) misunderstanding the situation and was like, I know I'm safe, but what about people with no homes? What are they doing right now? Oh, wow. You know, at 10 years old to have this two-year-old teaching me in that way, right? It was just so profound and just made me think about how when we're really paying attention, that's Mm -hmm. something I feel like, at least for me, there, there can be from an early age a tuning into and that in some ways maybe that gets taught out of us at certain points. Um, mm-hmm. as get sucked into this individualist capitalist culture. Mm-hmm. I feel like the big transition for me was actually more from there is suffering to there is excess suffering that's unevenly heaped onto people in these raced and classed and gendered ways. So this distinction between the inevitable suffering of life that we all have to deal with illness and aging and loss of loved ones and and different things like that, right? Accidents, dying. And then there's all this excess suffering that we design, right? Through all of our systems that exploit and oppress. And I, maybe about a decade ago or so, came across an article by someone named John Powell. And he talks about this, he calls it surplus suffering. And that has been a really formative idea for me. And I feel like has named something that really has shaped so much of the work that I've done or felt compelled towards in my adult life. That's really about trying to address that 
surplus suffering and trying to be a part of redesigning how we do relationships, how we construct our organizations and institutions and our whole system in ways that are based on reciprocity and everyone's thriving and, um, and not based on creating this surplus suffering for so many people that is probably rooted in a lot of things. You know, in Buddhism, we talk about greed, hatred, delusion, probably in all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, but on some level also, I feel like is, I've been thinking a lot about death recently, again, a recurring theme. Um, and, and I think there's a way in which like, I grew up in a, um, my family is white Midwestern. There's different lineages there on my mom's side and my dad's side. But I think that there is a, a kind of culture of avoidance of death and avoidance of suffering that I feel like leads to an outsourcing of that. And when there's this kind of like sense that that something like suffering or death could be avoided, that, yeah, that that gets outsourced. And then that the fear of that and the, the not building the resilience around being with that leads to a lot of exploitation and oppression and pushing that excess suffering onto others. So yeah, so all that is a, a kind of long, uh, windy way of saying that I, I feel like for me, the transition has been left from I am suffering to there is suffering, as it has been from there is suffering to there is unevenly distributed surplus suffering. Yeah, wow, this, that's fantastic, all of this. I've made so many notes now of questions. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, also, this is, I think it's really interesting you said that there's this theme about death because that's something I am having conversations with people about again and again and again in this relationship that fear of death has with systemic oppression and the different angles that people are approaching that question and looking at it and like, what is there and how everyone seems to be finding something. And it's so interesting when I talk to so many different people from many different practice backgrounds and walks of life and doing lots of different kinds of work that this theme keeps coming up regardless. I'm like, wow, there's some sort of cultural tipping point happening here. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I find that very interesting. Uh, before we dig into this more, could you just share a little bit about what your current work is, like a run-through of key projects that you're committed to right now? Yeah, and I'm inspired to, if it's okay, share a, a quick quote that I just came across yesterday. Mm -hmm. that I feel like frames all of that work. My friend Nicola Torbett recently wrote, may every living creature who has ever died unjustly convict us, dog us, haunt us into a tenderness that gives itself to bring about an end to the terror. And wow. I feel like to me that really captures also in another way this, this commitment to addressing that surplus suffering, right? But also with, you know, being haunted by those premature deaths, right? And I would expand that to not talk just about dying unjustly, but also living a life with that kind of surplus suffering. And so the work that I'm involved with um, is, uh, there's a few different projects. And in some ways, I try to link them all up into that larger drive and, and commitment to how do we start to recreate our relationships and our institutions in ways that redistribute um, 
resources and not just material resources, but also the resources of of time and, mm. and labor so that everyone can also have, you know, leisure time and rest time and self-care time and, and thrive, right, in these different ways. And, and so that we're all have the circumstances to be able to, to offer the gifts that are ours to offer to the collective, right? So concretely, some of the things I'm involved with right now, I still do some part-time paid work at the university. I teach at UC Berkeley as exploited labor <laughs> um, <laughs> as an adjunct professor um i teach in a, with the global poverty and practice minors so students that have been doing work on poverty in one way or, or another and then i'm part of the solidarity family at poor magazine which is such an incredibly inspiring organization here in the bay area uh, they started out as a media generating and arts organization of homeless and formerly homeless and poor people creating media education art to frame the narrative of their own experiences rather than just always being researched and spoken for <laughs> and have evolved in so many ways. So they have a project now called Homefulness. They've acquired some land in East Oakland and are building multifamily homes. They have a sliding scale cafe there. They run a homeschool out of that called Decolonize Academy. They are launching right now the Bank of Community Reparations. And reparations is the model for all of their fundraising and mm -hmm. volunteering and all of that. So there's a, definitely a really a politicized framework for everything they do. They also do education for people with race, class, and formal education privilege called their degentrification school, people school. <laughs> degentrification oh. school. <laughs> they have, yeah, do, uh, do, I'm blanking right now on the full name. So I got hooked up with them actually when I was doing research for my dissertation, which was on the potential and pitfalls of white people's involvement in racial justice and decolonization processes. This was like 15 years ago now. But wow, so ahead of the um, curve. What's that? Ahead of the curve. Oh, in terms of reparations? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so exciting that that's exploded as a public discourse. But yeah, at the time I was looking for what are local organizations that are working under that framework. And they were one of the ones that I found. And, you know, I thought about that a lot on a, to circle back to death um, in terms of my mom my mother's death and having been with her through that dying process and mm. watching how some of my own, because I've held these values for a very long time, but watching some of them fly out the window in terms of embodied practices when it came to her final months and things she wanted to do, like go on a luxury cruise and invited me to come. And of course I said, yes, because my mom is dying. And just thinking about how when you allow excess resources to accumulate, it's very hard to be accountable for the kinds of decisions you make when it comes to your closest loved ones. I see that with how parents 
um, make decisions about where to send their kids to school and how that sort of changes, you know, hardcore public school advocates sometimes into, ooh, maybe we need to move to a different neighborhood so we can still go to a public school, but it's a better one, or maybe we need to consider private school after all, or these kinds of things, right? And Mm -hmm. if you have the resources to do it, and you can't blame people for that, right? Of course we want what's best for our kids, for our parents. And so how do we make sure that the resources don't so unequally accumulate to begin with so that we're not tempted to just be recreating those things because we're trying to do what's right by our loved ones, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like as long as we are all still living in capitalism, we will always be inevitably subject to capitalism and you can't live outside the system of capitalism. (laughs) Right. And so it was very important for me that when I did inherit money when my mom died to redistribute that because of that experience and watching that and knowing even now, you know, 10 years after my mom's death that I wouldn't make that decision differently. Yes, I'm still going to say yes to those things, extravagant things that she wanted to do because of the situation mm-hmm. that we were in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that was a little bit of a detour, but um, working with Poor Magazine as part of the Solidarity Family is a, a project that's still ongoing for me. And then the other big project over the past year and a half has been an organization that I co-founded called Creating Freedom Movements, which is how you came to call me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Said friend being Michelle Puckett, who's also been on the podcast before. (laughs) And that is a project I've been really excited about. It feels still very emergent. We're um, still in the middle of our pilot programming year right now. And it's a year-long program for people that want to increase justice and joy in their communities. It integrates analysis and the arts and healing practices and practical skills, you know, with this vision of being able to show up as all the aspects that we are as human beings with our body, mind, heart, souls to the social change work that we're engaged in and attending to, to all those different pieces. It's a cohort model and that it's a full year and we meet every single week um, over the course of that year plus one full Saturday a month. So it's a pretty intensive commitment with an intentionally diverse cohort of people, diverse across many axes, race, ethnicity, religion, sexuality, class, education, background, issue areas people care about, modalities that people work in. And that has been both about how do we actually start practicing this live into beloved community when many of us don't spend significant amounts of time in relationship and working with people across those many different lines, right? And develop actual real cross-issue solidarity from coming to understand more about each other's needs and priorities and desires and what it means to, you know, show up for each other. I I love earlier you were talking about what is the work of recreating our organizations and institutions so that they're not Mm -hmm. replicating these systems that oppress and marginalize. And my personal work which is also why I've been doing the, why I signed up to do the uh, chaplaincy training that I'm doing is really exploring what it is to be of service in communities where people are learning to see their complicity in oppressive systems and Mm kind of unlearn those habits and start to notice implicit biases and interrupt the narratives that come along with that. Things like not speaking for groups of people (laughs) 
<laughs> actually asking and listening and trusting that people can report on their own experience accurately. <laughs> so it's, it's something I explore a lot in my personal work where I'm, I'm in this place of looking at my own implicit biases, the way that I've been socialized as somebody who is white passing in the world and who, because of my age and because of the way that we talk about things like disability, I have only just recently started to explore the identity of being a spoonie and being someone who mm -hmm. has a condition. That means I can be disabled. Uh, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's a reality I live with. And, and, and then taking that out and how I then also engage with people around me in communities. So what have been some of the intersections of your life and your personal identities and how that's come out in the community work that you do and in something like creating freedom movements? Mm -hmm. Such a big question. Um, I know. Let's just talk about intersectionality now. Right. Trying to think about which place to start from chronological, reverse, random. I mean, the, the believing other people <laughs> that you pointed to, right, um, and their accounts of their reality, I think is a, a huge piece. For me, I grew up uh, what's called a third culture kid, meaning I moved back and forth between the U.S. and Germany several times uh, throughout my growing up and lived, you know, always significant chunks of years in each place immersed, you know, so I went to German schools when I was in Germany, for example, and developed the sense of not really claiming either place. Um, people would always say, do you feel more German or more American? I'm like, could I please choose neither? Because, <laughs> um, but the reason I was in Germany was because my dad was wor working for the U.S. military. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little tangled up into different threads here. But what I wanted to share about just that experience of going back and forth, and also I think as a result of identifying from a young age as queer, and not, you know, completely heterosexual or completely homosexual, but bisexual, also not quite working um, <laughs> as a term. This sort of in-betweenness with the queerness and with the third culture kidness led to this kind of questioning of categories hmm. that I think created a kind of just intrinsic from a young age curiosity and of believing people's stories about themselves, mm -hmm. right? That also don't always fit what my pre-existing assumptions would be. And I do think that that, I feel like you really pointed on something fundamental there, that that is a crucial orientation to really addressing our implicit biases. And so for me, you know, that was my early experience. And I remember though also points of that turning into this somewhat individualized framework that then I had to learn to recognize that even though all these categories are constructed, they still have meaningful impacts on our lived realities, right? Yeah. And if we are perceived in the world as white or as black or as female or as male, and, you know, to just name some binaries also that have gotten constructed, right? That those yeah. things have very real consequences. And to believe each other 
of not only our individual experiences, but also um, the ways that those are collective. Mm, yeah, okay. That I'm, I'm thinking about what you said earlier about how there's this inherent sense of connection we have when we're kids, right? And that gets pummeled out of us by an idea of hyper-individualism and how hyper-individualism is really isolating. And that's sort of part of it. Like, how do we get almost funneled into specific identities according to what's imposed upon us in Mm -hmm. such a way that we collectively actually contribute to the problem by ignoring or erasing or not even realizing an identity that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've been grateful for some of the framing that some of my Buddhist teachers have brought to this in terms of recognizing that there is a kind of universal ultimate reality Mm-hmm. right which is this oneness thing and there's a historical contemporary reality which is the ways in which because of the causes and uh conditions of our history and all the categories and divisions that we've created we are not living we can't do the spiritual bypass of just you know jump over into that oneness we have to move through <laughs> and transform those things that we've created not to make everyone the same, right? Mm-hmm. But that's sort of the difference between sameness and equity, right? Um, we can all be different and valued in all of our differences while recognizing our equal worth and value, right? Mm-hmm. So that's been a helpful framework for me for holding that dance, the both and of those things. Yeah, what are, what are sort of the practices or tools that you have for thinking collectively in that both end space? For me, the main practice in terms of orienting towards thinking collectively uh, has to do with paying attention, ultimately. I have a, a strong commitment to practicing honesty, vulnerability, and also just responsiveness. Um, and what I mean by responsiveness is, you know, sometimes we hear these compelling statements like, that we are all interconnected and about values of interdependence or these quotes about, you know, our liberation being bound up in one another, that none of us is free of one. Reverend angel. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. All of those things. So how do we allow those things to literally move us to not just, you know, internally move us, which I I don't want to belittle that, you know, I really believe Audre Lorde's essay about poetry is not a luxury. Right. Mm. But to me, the question then becomes, how do we actually live into, embody the possibilities that that poetry allows us to imagine? So if we are opening to these, um, the yearning of these possibilities and other ways of being, how do we start actually embodying that moving in ways that start to uh, create that on the ground? I think really dwelling in that question and letting the letting that just constantly be be percolating and and driving us to to experimenting and trying things out and trying to come into greater integrity between those philosophies and how we're actually living right that that starts to for me lead to a certain blurring even of the lines of self and other self-care and other care, they become 
experienced as facets of the same with the sense that we have to attend to all the facets, right? So it's not that then I like martyr myself and take myself out of the equation, right? But it's also making sure that I'm not like getting too clingy and hoardy and only focusing on myself and always myself first. I hear people often use this uh, metaphor of you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you help someone else with theirs, right? Mm -hmm. And I question that, actually, (laughs) that metaphor. Why do you question it? (laughs) Um, Because I feel like, you know, sometimes that metaphor applies, right? In situations where we have pushed ourselves to the point of burnout, illness, death even, then yes, we're not going to be of use to anyone. And those are the situations that we're in sometimes, right? But I think it's important to not always assume that that is the situation and that sometimes it's maybe not that extreme for me, but maybe it's actually just about dealing with a little extra discomfort, a little extra suffering, right? To return to where we started Uh um, in order to redistribute some of the surplus suffering, right? So that the surplus suffering isn't always borne by the same people because often maybe I'm going to feel better with putting that oxygen mask on faster right away, but it's not really going to cause me great harm to delay putting it on for a while while I attend to um, someone else who might be in a more dire situation right at this moment and where it's going to make a bigger difference for that to go on faster. (laughs) I feel like I'm belaboring the metaphor a bit. No, I I, kind of like it. I'm thinking like I'm drawing some connections and like, okay, well, it's a tangible example. And it could be like, um, as somebody socialized as white, like refusing to participate in a race awareness workshop because it's really uncomfortable and you like, you know, retreating into white fragility and being like, no, why? And getting really defensive and like, what am I supposed to just feel guilty and whatever? And you're like, oh, I need to go and do some self-care and not do race workshops right now. It's like, actually, right now, Black, Indigenous, people of color are on a flaming plane and you're not. (laughs) (laughs) So like, Sit with your fragility, sit with the guilt, learn from it, and go mm-hmm. to the workshop. <laughs> yeah, go absolutely. <laughs> I think that's a great example. And I think even in terms of the self-care, right? Like, just like with redistributing material resources, the goal is not for everyone to end up in poverty. The goal is for everyone to have enough. So I'm not trying to, like, impoverish myself and suddenly be out on the streets when I'm contemplating redistribution. But I am trying to figure out how do I live simply in order to attend to the fact that there are people living out on the streets, right? In that flaming plane, like you're saying, right? And I think a similar question can be asked even in terms of these questions of self-care, right? Like the point is not that I never get to rest, but how do we be attentive to also redistributing access to rest and leisure time in the same way that we think about redistributing access to material resources, right? How do we make sure that it's not always the same people who get all the self-care they need at all the moments that they feel they need it, and others are constantly running much closer to empty? So those are, those are some, some big questions for me. How do we assess what is enough in terms of rest and self-care even for ourselves so that we can generously then give of ourselves so others can have enough of those things too, to be thinking about the the collective self-care. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, this concept of enough is something that I work with a lot uh, for myself around like, how do I value my own contributions in the world as meaningful without being swayed intensely by capitalist ideals that basically, unless you're making gobs of money, then what you're doing isn't valuable. And actually see like, actually what I'm doing is enough and it's valuable even if I don't get paid. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and that, that does come across, right? Like I, I get the sense of enough just from having one person make a comment like, oh, that one episode of your podcast really spoke to me or mm-hmm. made me feel less alone in the world or really galvanized me to some sort of action. And like the sense of poverty mentality is so reinforced by living within capitalism. So what's your experience of like, how do you know and what are the things that you do to sort of orient yourself to get a sense of what is enough? (laughs) Um, That's a great question. I feel like that's actually a topic that I've been working with for many, many years in my life with precisely that framework, right? Of what is enough. And in some ways, in terms of the material pieces, that's been easier for me to get to a point where I have some clarity and ease around that. And it actually is around this time and attention piece where I still struggle. I think some key practices have been uh, a spirit, spiritual practices that just help me develop a bit of trust, right? Including this trust in the, the collective, this knowledge that as much as capitalism is trying to teach us that we are all alone and have to be self-sufficient, that that is not true and has never been true. There are always people supporting us and we're always supporting other people, right? And we can choose to focus on that and to build off of that more um, so that that enables a, a trust and a greater ease of being in the flow of all the different types of resources, right? I think there's also been this piece, you know, like you were saying, a sense of enough with our contributions. There's a kind of fundamental first piece for me, which is internalize this notion of being enough as a being, period. Mm. Like not having to- You're enough just because you are. Right. (laughs) And you have to like prove something or earn your keep in certain ways or whatever. And that's a struggle, you know, partly in terms of, whiteness and U.S. citizenship and thinking about all the ways of being complicit and wrapped up in in taking and dispossessing. And so there is a, a bit of a drive that's about, um, I don't know that I would put it so much as like earning my keep, but but that is about a sense of responsibility to, to address those things. And it, I ultimately think every single person, no matter how we are situated, has a responsibility to address the various injustices of Mm. the world. We just have different roles to play. You know, you brought up earlier being a Spoonie. I, about six years ago or so, started developing a disability called multiple chemical sensitivities. And it's changed a lot of how I'm able to move in the world. And that, and I've also, during that time and also starting a few years before that become more familiar with people working in the disability justice movement, which is a queer people of color, disabled led movement. That's really focusing on those intersections in some very robust ways that I've Mm. found very transformative and grappling with the internalized capitalism around 
how we define our self-worth in terms of our productivity, right? Mm -hmm. And how ableist that is. And also thinking about how these things intersect and how racism as well as capitalism and ableism and patriarchy are all in various ways defining certain bodies, certain minds as more worthy than others. And so developing a sense of each of our inherent worthiness and enoughness is part of the project of, of countering that. So that does feel like really important practice and remains complex because of how all these different identities do intersect, right? And that we're not all equally impacted even by the, the ableism. You know, if I'm disabled as a white person with the various resources I have, that that's not the same experience as um, someone who's disabled and a person of color, right? Like there's different yeah. um, experiences happening at the intersections there. Yeah, too. like my experience with mental illness, while challenging in many ways, I know that I was not ever under any risk of being arrested and put in jail mm-hmm. as a white person right? experiencing symptoms of mental illness. But if you're a Black person in America, especially a Black man in America, I didn't even remember what the stats are, but it's like almost 100% likely you're, you're going to end up in prison rather than actually in a facility that will care for you and provide you with the support you need. Right. Or dead. Or dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or dead. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, heavy. Um, not to change subjects, but I feel like this is a really important thing to touch on and speak to because this is hard work, this like social change work. And you've talked a lot about self-care and how important that is. And also you've mentioned a few times the importance of there being joy in this work and that that is part of being able to show up and do it. And also part of making it sustainable, making these movements sustainable. Um, Because this is really heavy stuff. We are, we are talking about people dying a lot of the time. So what have you and your fellow cohort members and comrades and people that you do all this work with, like what are some of the practices you have for infusing joy into your work? Well, I think part of that is by creating the space for our full selves to show up, right? Um, I think the least joyful social change environments I've been in is when you show up and people barely even necessarily know each other. There's not really much time given for relationship building and it's just a to-do list and allocating and strategizing and implementing and where it can be sometimes very hard to, to change that culture because of the urgency, because things are urgent also. Right. But that, but I've also found that, It takes a lot of energy for me to sustain participation in those types of environments and that the more um, long-term involvement that I have with projects and organizations is when there is time built in for relationship building. There is time built in for grieving. And so joy to me isn't always about like, everything is happy, although that's part of it too, right? Like how are we also just enjoying each other? And how are we also even enjoying the work that we're doing? Um, Are we exercising our creative sides as we uh, think about the types of interactions that we're crafting? But yes, you know, time to to grieve and to rage, to get to know each other, to, to be really in tune with 
not only why we're doing this work, but, you know, I believe in the, the philosophy of prefigurative politics, where you're trying to live into the kind of world you're trying to create as much as possible in the process of creating it, so that the, the process itself is mirroring where you're trying to, to go. I can't remember the, the source of, of this quote, but I read someone writing once about how it's a difficult decision to make in the morning when you're torn between wanting to savor the world and its beauty and wanting to save it. But that in a way, the savoring has to come first so that you're even in tune with what you're even trying to save, so to speak. Yeah. Very rough paraphrase there. But yeah, I think that kind of orientation, the word saving aside, right, which has its own problems, but <laughs> um, of getting to to show up as our, our full selves, that is to me a big part of what a practice that enables the the joy to flow. As I was listening to you speak, I was just thinking like, right, yeah, and that is the work, right? The work is building community because that's the point. We've been so isolated often, and that isolation is a key part of what perpetuates so many of these systems. And frankly, I think that's also the thing that then enables us to extend ourselves and to stretch ourselves, you know, when it does feel like the the oxygen is running a little <laughs> low, right? Like I think about, um, I, I'm not a parent, but I know a lot of parents and, I, and I've been on the child end of the parent-child <laughs> relationship. <laughs> and I, I think about what we can learn from that and how much parents extend themselves in ways they never thought they would be capable of once they're, you know, in that type of relationship. For me, it raises the question of how do we extend that level of commitment, that type of stretching ourselves into capacities we didn't even know we had in other realms, right? And with other Mm -hmm. relationships as well. Um, How do we learn to recognize and deeply internalize all beings as kin so to speak, in a way that inspires that level of commitment from us and where that itself, even though it might be hard and not always pleasurable in that particular kind of way, is joyful because of the relationship. Yeah, no, that's, man, I'm like snapping over here. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) yes, totally. Uh, It just like speaks so strongly to the sense that I have, like I, I like to tell people, that I, I think of the times, I, I think of what it feels like to be loved unconditionally. Mm. And I think about how good that feels to know mm-hmm. someone loves you unconditionally. And that my deepest longing and the orientation for all of my practice and work in the world is may I love the whole world how it feels to be loved like that. Mm-hmm. And I always come back to that. And it's like, yeah, it shouldn't, I shouldn't need biology to care that much about <laughs> other human beings and other beings generally because of this interdependence. Um, earlier, very earlier, you said you talked about resilience and tenderness. Mm -hmm. And I love that you use both of those together within the same context. Uh, and so there's unpacking what those look like and the relationships the two have. Um, and then the other possible question is just what are some of your self care practices or soul care or spirit, spirit care practices? Mm. Mm-hmm. So you may answer either or both. I feel like they relate, right? Oh. Um, because I think the resilience comes from some of the soul care practices and that the tenderness 
I don't know that it depends on, but in my experience, I'm able to access my tenderness more freely when I'm feeling more resilient. My goal, my practice is to access my tenderness all the time. <laughs> but uh, when I'm uh, feeling less nourished, it can be harder to access. So how do you nourish yourself? How do I nourish? Right. For me, I've learned that a big piece of that has to do with spending time in nature. And I am not able to always do that to the extent that I'd like. But I recently, a few months ago, have started, and it doesn't work out every day, but I'm pretty proud of how many days it works out, to start my day by going outside, even if it's just for, you know, a 15 minute walk. Um, I live not too far away from some water and some trees. And to even if it's just a, a short period of time to start my day that way, it helps give me some perspective and helps me drop into my body and my spirit in a way that just really makes a difference to start the day that way. And I move in and out of a meditation practice. That's still an ongoing experiment of building that into my life. Movement is another big one. And I've had to, that's one of the places I've had to mourn a lot because I have enjoyed doing dance class with others a lot as a spiritual practice and a way of being in my body. And the chemical sensitivities has made that pretty impossible because mm. people wear their scented deodorants and their scented lotions and all those things and everyone's moving around and you're breathing more deeply. So that's been a big sense of loss. And I've been having to experiment recently with not giving up on that practice altogether, but trying to figure out how can I build that into my life, whether that's in my home or even outside. And I'm still figuring that out. And, you know, there's, there's bigger possibilities to undertake with that of like trying to organize a fragrance-free dance class or something, but that, you know, takes a lot of groundwork um, and <laughs> I haven't had the, the energy to make that happen yet. But historically, dance has been a big practice for me. And so part of it, I mean, to, again, uh, loop back to the tenderness for me has been having to practice tenderness with myself and others through those changes and what they mean about how I'm able to, to move and be in the world. It's interesting. I ask people that self-care question a lot. And I find it really interesting that so much of it comes from a feeling of connection, right? Whatever someone's self-care practice is, is always about, it's never really about checking out. No one's like, oh, my self-care is going and getting my nails done, which is very funny because that's what people always like to reference. They're like, it's like yeah. going to the spa. I'm like, I don't know anyone who's ever said that's what they do for their self-care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People's things are like, yeah, I'm going to go out into nature. I'm going to spend time with a really good friend. I'm going to intentionally make time to sit down and enjoy a book. Um, and all of that mm -hmm. is to me about, even if you go out for a walk by yourself, you're still engaging with a sense of belonging and connection absolutely I'm like i am part of this i am not separate from this <laughs> mm -hmm. absolutely um so final question okay this is really actually not even a question this is your opportunity to make an offering to listeners of anything that you want to say that you didn't feel like you got to say anything you'd like to leave people with as guidance support resources any offering at all well 
um, I'm often always like preaching to myself, <laughs> right? So the things that come up are, what do I need to hear right now? I always feel the need to remind myself and come back to the concept of compassion, compassion for myself, compassion for others, compassion for the different places we're all at in our processes and journeys and um, a willingness to meet ourselves and each other where we're at and to accompany ourselves and each other on those journeys and just uh, to, to pair that with some humility of things are so vast and there's so much that we don't know and to surrender into that a little bit in those moments where frustration might arise in regards to these questions of, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? Is this other person doing enough, in my opinion, <laughs> or the right things, right? Other and people. To, yeah, have that humility <laughs> and compassion as guides. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Cecilia Sissel Lucas's work in the world, you can look at her bio at creatingfreedommovements.org. You can learn more about Poor Magazine and their amazing offerings at poormagazine.org. Both these organizations are sustained thanks to donations, so if it's something you can offer, please consider becoming a donor to either or both. I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons, without whom I could not make my practice the focus of my time and attention. Immense appreciation to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Perry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Mulkern, Michelle Puckett, Sierra Love, and Chrissy Bird. Patrons help me to cover the cost of producing this podcast, but also make it possible for me to do outreach for my chaplaincy, buy art supplies, and have focus time for writing. Visit CaitlinSCHatch.com to see the breadth of my work in the world. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of Moore Music. 